Let's begin in prayer. Gracious Lord, we're just truly blown away by your love, mercy and compassion to us that uh, our sins, though, like mountains, they build up before us, that uh, you, O oh Lord, you blot them out. Our sins, Lord, they blot out the sun, but you blot them out from our lives. You wipe them away so that they don't and, and are not seen anymore. And we're just so grateful for your love and kindness to us in such a way. We pray, Lord, that as we open your word today, that you would speak through your word, that you would make it powerful and effective, and that you would, Lord, address uh, the things in our life that keep us from you, that you would bring us, Lord, into sweet relationship with you, that you would help us and enable us, Lord, to see how we do stand before you. Do we stand in the righteousness of Christ? Or do we stand, Lord, in our own effort? Help us, Lord, to discern these things, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, I forgot I had to read the passage. We're going to read Psalm 7. Uh, last week we uh, commenced Psalm 7 and we looked at uh, verses 1 through to 10. Uh, this week uh, we going to look at verses um, 11 through to 17. So Psalm 7. O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory in the dust. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the people. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. And this is our passage today. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into a hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Last week, looking at verses 1 to 10 uh, we, of Psalm 7, we saw that it speaks directly about three persons. That first person is God. Verse 1 begins, O Lord, my God. The second one is the one who cries out to God. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. And we know this to be David. The third is David's enemies, who he is seeking refuge from. And in the introduction to that psalm, if you read it, uh, they are represented by Cush. Cush may have been Saul or he may not. We took the premise that there is God and there's only two types of people in this world. There are people like David, a man of righteousness and integrity, who cry out to God, take refuge in God and seek for God to deliver them from all that would tear their souls apart. And there are people like Cush. They can even seem to be part of God's people, but they look to themselves rather than God. And that's the greatest sin that you can commit. Their lives become dominated by sin. 
in Saul's case, if he was Cush, he is motivated by jealousy, pride, arrogance. Sinfulness leads to more sin. He resorts to lies and slander, seeking to destroy David. We work through the verses to uncover the difference in character between uh, these two men, how they acted differently, and we saw that David is calling on God to judge between them. David wants God to judge on the basis of their righteousness or lack thereof. In verse 9, David is calling his pursuers wicked and he wants their evil to come to an end. David is saying that he is righteous and he wants God to establish that. He is righteous particularly in relation to these false charges against him. We saw how God looked down on him from heaven and watched this situation develop. God being sovereign God actually caused this situation with David to develop. He did it to test or to prove David's faith. David was being pursued by this man Cush who was seeking to destroy him with slander and lies. And David felt like his soul was being torn apart. He is in a truly miserable condition, full of despair, anxiety, feeling hopeless, helpless in this situation. The testing or proving of a saint's faith requires them to be put into a furnace of affliction to burn out all the impurities from their lives. And the heat of that furnace depends upon how willing you are to dealing with sin in your life. This place of despair, hopelessness and helplessness is where God wants you. He wants you to see there is nothing you can do to save yourself, to help yourself, to deliver yourself from your enemies of your soul, your sins that are tearing it apart, that are destroying you. What do you do when God kicks the stuffing out of you? When you have been reduced just to an empty shell of yourself, feeling desperate, helpless and hopeless. We in reform circles have had it drummed into us that all of our righteousness is as filthy rags before God, is despised by God. And inwardly we all know this to be true. It's this self-righteousness that indwells us which keeps us trapped in sin. And God is looking to bring self-righteousness to an end in our lives. The more we hang on to self-righteousness, the greater the trial will be. The more God will crank up the heat in this furnace of affliction, in this refiner's fire, to burn it out of us. He wants all sin to be burnt out. He wants self-righteousness to be dealt with. In verse 8, David says, Judge me according to my righteousness, according to the integrity of my heart. David is appealing to righteousness in him, in his heart, the integrity of his heart. He's asking God to look into his heart and his mind and to see the righteousness that he is trusting in. And in verse 10, David declares, My shield is with God. He is trusting not in his own self-righteousness. He is trusting in God's righteousness. It's God who saves the upright in heart. So David has passed this testing of faith with flying colours. His faith is in God to save him. What is this righteousness that shields David, shields the saints? Well, we know it as the perfect righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and it is imputed to them. This imputed righteousness, it's this righteousness that is put to their account. It's placed like a cloak over them, completely covering them and it protects them from God's wrath, from God's wrath against all their sin. And they received it when they first came to faith and they have this covering over them all their Christian life until they come to glory. Jesus bore the punishment from God for their sin when he died for them on the cross. And so all their sins are forgiven and God now sees them completely covered 
by the Lord Jesus Christ's righteousness. David says, who saves the upright in heart? David is claiming here that he is upright in heart. What is this? Well, this is what we know as imparted righteousness. When we first came to faith, the Holy Spirit comes to live within us. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 5, it says that we've become partakers of the divine nature of God. Now, the nature of God is righteousness. Righteousness now dwells within us. It's been imparted to us by God. Romans 6.18 says, Paul says there, that we have been set free from sin in our lives. And it now empowers us, sorry, we have been set free from sin and its domination in our lives. And we have become slaves to righteousness. We're no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. What happens is imparted righteousness from God that comes into us, from God dwelling in us, it overcomes sin in our lives. It empowers us to put to death sin in the members of our body. It is God who saves David from all his enemies and it's God who saves us from all aspects of sin. So keep in mind three types of righteousness. The first is self-righteousness, the type of righteousness that the Pharisees boasted in, which is like filthy rags before God. God hates it, is contemptuous of self-righteousness, and so should we be. Self-righteousness is what keeps you enslaved in sin. It is weak, powerless, useless, hopeless, helpless. And if you're a saint trusting in self-righteousness, that's how you will feel. Helpless, hopeless, powerless. How often do we feel that way? The second type of righteousness is Christ's righteousness, which is a gift of God imputed to us without measure. At our new birth, and it covers us completely for all time. This is our shield. That's the shield that David is talking about in verse 10 that protects us from the wrath of God. We glory in imputed righteousness of Christ. Then there is the third one, imparted righteousness, also a gift from God, which comes, becomes ours at our new birth also. But the amount of imparted righteousness we have or possess is dependent upon how much we cooperate with the Holy Spirit in dealing with sin in our lives. We rejoice in the imparted righteousness as we see sin being conquered and as we see it being dealt with in our lives. That's how God refines a saint. Today, we're going to look at how God judges an unrepentant sinner. Verse 11 of our reading says, God is a righteous judge. That means that he judges rightly. He is not fooled by any smokescreen of religion that we may throw up around ourselves. God looks right into the heart and he sees what's motivating you in your heart. Cush was a Benjamite and he would be claiming to be one of God's people. But an examination of his heart shows that this is not the case. He is a proud, arrogant, jealous, slanderous liar. He is self-righteous. Verse 11 goes on to say, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God feels wrath every day. He feels anger every day and it's against sin. Do you think about the anger that God has with sin in our lives? We accept sin in our lives so easily, don't we? But it causes indignation or anger towards in God. The fact is we accept so much love and grace and blessing from God as if it's our right, but then we contribute, continue to treat God in an offhand, casual manner in regards to the sin that remains in our life. Jonathan Edwards preached a famous sermon in the 1700s called 
sinners in the hands of an angry God. And it showed just what a precarious position a person is in when they go up against God. Verse 12 says, if a man does not repent. William Romain, also a 17th century preacher, said, it is a futile war. A proud sinner fighting against a holy God. Who do you think will conquer? Oh, beware of all high thoughts of yourself and your doings. Take heed of admiring your own greatness or goodness. Self-delight is a very pleasing sin, but more hateful to a jealous God than the gross sins of the flesh. God is jealous and God is angry. Do you ever think that that's the case? In Proverbs 8.3, God says, I hate pride and arrogance. It's very easy for us to think highly about ourselves, isn't it? Even highly about what we are doing for God. That ministry is all about you. It's about your unique gifts, your talents, your abilities. God hates that. Ministry is always about God, about who he is, about what he's done and about what he is doing. In thinking that it's about you, you are taking God's honour and glory for yourself. Augustine said, if God did not spare the angels when they grew proud, will he spare you who are but dust and sin? In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter stood up and he preached a sermon to many of the Jews who actually crucified Jesus. He told them from the Old Testament that God had made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus that they had crucified. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. It means that they believed. Peter told them to repent and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. People who crucified Jesus were saved. If they can repent and be saved, then you can too. Your sin is not too great that God won't forgive you. Refusing to repent is what is unforgivable. Repentance is all about believing the gospel, confessing faith in Christ, witnessing that by baptism, having your sins forgiven and receiving the Holy Spirit. Genuine repentance comes with the knowledge of your sins being forgiven and is marked by holiness of life because you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit turns you away from sinful life to a holy life. Many people claim to be Christians but continue revelling in their sins. People who have genuinely received forgiveness of their sins, they flee from sin. It is now hateful to them. It's what sent Jesus to the cross. They want nothing to do with it any longer. Looking at ongoing sin in our lives as a Christian can drive us into a state of deep despair. If you're in that place, I would stop. I would say stop looking at your miserable self. No wonder you are miserable. Look at your glorious saviour. You will not find any power in yourself to change. Looking at Christ will lift your spirits. It will enable you to apply God's word to your life. It's God's word which is powerful and effective, applied by the Holy Spirit in your life. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God, the righteous judge, knows if you have truly repented. He sees the motivation of your heart. He knows when his Holy Spirit is active within you. So we are to plead for the Holy Spirit to be active within us and to overcome the besetting sins that indwell us. The passage goes on. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. Wetting his sword means he has pulled it out of his scabbard, it's in his hand, and he has sharpened it on a whetstone. A whetstone is a sharpening stone. 
God's sword is in his hand, it is sharpened and it is ready for use and he is indignant, he is angry. It's bad enough knowing that God sees everything sinful thing that we do, but to realise he has a sharpened sword in his hand and it's ready at any moment to cut down the unrepentant sinner, that is something else again. To make sure we understand, he goes on and he says, he has bent his bow, he has readied his arrows, his deadly weapons, making fiery shafts. A bent bow means it's pulled back, it's to full strain. Fiery arrows are loaded in. Jonathan Edwards used this picture in his sermon and he says it is aimed at the unrepentant heart. A fully bent bow loaded with a fiery arrow aimed at the heart. Oh, how close to death unrepentant men are. Edwards used his text from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35, which says, their foot shall slide in due time. God decides the time that they will slip and slide to destruction. Jonathan Edwards also uses Psalm 37 to develop, uh, 73 to develop that, verses 18 and 19. He says, truly you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are brought down into desolation as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. Do we realise how precarious our life is? God, the righteous judge, can at any moment, he can bring us down to desolation and consume us with terrors. I think we've all experienced that to a degree. And we should pray that those desolations and terrors that God brings upon our soul would cause us to cry out for mercy, as David did. But for the wicked, it's not so. They seek to run, they seek to hide, they seek to escape. People escape with alcohol, drugs, vain worldly pursuits, partying, accumulating wealth, fame, anything that distracts us from our true state. But God at any time can call time on your life and in a moment you'll be standing before him to answer for all that you've done in the flesh. We can't escape. We can't. We won't escape. How many stars or celebrities, people who have it all, just end their lives or die so young? Edwards uses Amos chapter 9 verses 2 and 3 to show this. It says, if they dig down into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. If they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. You can't escape from God. We don't hear too much about the anger of God these days. We're always hearing about God's mercy, love and grace. Don't be fooled. God's mercy, love and grace is why God is angry. Because the world, the unrepentant, have rejected them. In rejecting God, in rejecting his rule over them, they have rejected these blessings that flow from God. It is through the mercy, love and grace of God that salvation comes to the sinner. God's mercy, love and grace poured out upon this world cost God his beloved son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him might not perish but have everlasting life. You reject what cost God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his life. It's a free gift but the unrepentant reject it. And you wonder why God is angry? Over the past year we've heard about an extremely wealthy man in America, a friend of princes and prince and presidents who indulged his lust and desires abusing underage girls. He used his wealth, his connections, his power and his influence to avoid being prosecuted over many, many years. Finally God said enough is enough and he was a
called to account before worldly justice. While in jail, waiting trial, he took his life. How anxious, despairing, desperate do you have to be to take your own life? Suicide rates in the Western world are increasing in direct correlation to the decline in Christianity in society. As people walk away from faith in God, hopelessness and despair rises. Now we can only speculate as to why this man took his life. Maybe he couldn't bear to think about spending the rest of his life in prison after living such a privileged life and despair arose to such an extent he thought he would end it. Maybe he became concerned about all the powerful connections he had associated with and what they would do to him if he dragged them down into the sleazy accusations that he was accused of. He was in a place of desolation consumed with terrors and he decided to end it. Whatever it is that motivated him to take his own life, he hasn't escaped from justice, from judgment. He might have avoided it here on earth, but what a fool. He has ushered himself directly into the presence of God, the righteous judge of all the earth. While he had breath in his body, he had opportunity to repent, but now he can't. Even he could have accepted the free gift of salvation from God in Christ, but he didn't. Not only is God going to hold him to account for all the lustful depravity and abuse in his life, God will hold him accountable for rejecting him, rejecting his son, the Lord Jesus, for not believing the gospel, the good news of salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, don't fear man who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. It's one thing to stand before a judge and be found guilty. It's quite another thing to stand before a judge who is sentencing you and to know that he is angry at you. Why are we still alive if God is so angry at our sin? Why hasn't he already called us to stand before him in judgment? Peter in his second epistle, chapter 3, verse 9, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise of judgment, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's all about repentance, sincere regret, remorse. You know if a true work of repentance is going on inside of you because there's a war going on inside of you. The godly nature in you is seeking to put to death the sin that dwells in the members of your body. It's a fight. Mostly it's a fight to get your body, which loves sin, to give it up. You are aware of a new nature within you and you desire to put your, behind you your old way of life, of serving yourself, of pleasing yourself, and a new desire is in you to serve God, to please God. This has become the new orientation of your life. It's a power which keeps pushing you forward. It's irresistible. Sometimes we love our sins so much that we do seek to resist it. We fight it, but it won't leave us alone. That is God working in you. The more we resist God, the more the trial, more trial he will bring into our life. The hotter he will crank up that refining fire. He does it to humble us and to throw us back continually upon his mercy. This is a lifelong process. If you don't know that fight happening to you, then you're most likely an unrepentant sinner. If that's the case, my friend, look up. See that sharpened sword in the hand of God who is indignant and who is angry at your refusal to make him Lord of your life. See that fully bent bow with that fiery arrow aimed at your heart and he is angry because you will not repent of your sin. You are at any point a breath, a heartbeat, beat away from being called up to answer to him for your obstinate rejection of him. You think you're young and you have plenty of time? You want to live life a little bit first, please yourself. 
I don't care what age you are, your next breath is by the grace of God. I remind you again that the Lord is not slow to fulfil his promise. He is being patient toward you so that you will repent and not perish. Don't test the patience of God. This may be the first warning that you ever receive, but it may be the final warning, the only warning. I don't know, only God knows. I don't know how much you have provoked him in the way that you've lived your life. All I do know is that he's just got to loose his finger a fraction and you're gone. That fiery arrow is in flight to your heart. The emphasis of this passage is for your own soul's sake. Repent and be saved. Does this passage bring the fear of God into your heart? Well, that's good. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Don't run from it. Seek it. Have the wisdom of God controlling your life and you will know spiritual joy, you'll know spiritual peace and you'll have rest without measure. Rest in God. We all know that the punishment for an unrepentant sinner is hell. We don't hear much preaching about hell today and any that is out there is watered a down version compared to what has been preached in the past. Some preachers in time past become known as hellfire and damnation preachers. The fact is they had a great and genuine concern about people's intransience in believing the gospel. And to overcome this, they become very graphic in what they imagine punishment in hell was like to scare people into the kingdom of God. And they said things like, it's so hot in hell that the fluid in your eyeballs will boil and they'll explode. They were trying to describe the horror of the torment of a soul in hell. It's a good thing for a preacher to illustrate scripture to enable our understanding of it, but a problem arises when the message becomes more about the illustration than it does about the scripture being preached. And there are many sermons preached which are more about the cleverness of the preacher in his illustration than the spiritual truth that God is trying or seeking to reveal to us. And so there's been a big pushback today against that type of preaching. And we now have people standing in pulpits denying the existence of hell or that punishment is eternal. A.W. Pink in his book, The Attributes of God, talking about the patience of God, said this, meditate often upon death, which is most certain, on judgment, which is most strict, on hell, which is most dreadful, full of dread, on heaven, which is so delightful, full of delight. And I can say that all my life, those four things have always been in the back of my mind, exerting an influence on my life. There's no direct reference to hell in this passage, but hell is what the judgment of God on unrepentant sinners leads to. So I'm hopefully give you a few appropriate thoughts. There's a lot of conjecture on hell, so don't take my word for what I say, but be like the Bereans, search the scriptures to verify what Paul, like Paul did, to, like they did with Paul, to see what he said was true. The greatest authority and the person who speaks the most about hell in the Bible is Jesus. In Mark 9, 23, Jesus refers to hell as the unquenchable fire. In 9, 48, he says it's a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Matthew 13, 42, it's a fiery furnace in which there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. In Matthew 25, 30, it is a place of outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unquenchable fire, worms that don't die, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is somewhere nobody wants to be. Matthew 25, 46, where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats, the goats go away to eternal punishment and the righteous to eternal life. In Luke 16, 19 to 31, we have the story that Jesus tells about the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. When Lazarus died, he was carried by angels to Abraham's side. 
I can tell you I'm really looking forward to that. I reckon that's a beautiful picture. The rich man, we're told, when he died, he was buried in Hades in torment. He wanted Lazarus to dip his finger in water and come and cool the rich man's tongue because he was in agony in this fire. Jesus said that it was not possible because there was a great gulf fixed between heaven and hell which cannot be crossed. If anybody says anything that contradicts what Jesus says in these passages, I'd say to miss it, dismiss it entirely. Some of my observations. The rich man's torment continued unabated. You can't escape hell. Your misery won't be lessened. The torment in hell is not instructive. It does not change the rich man's superior attitude towards Lazarus. He wanted Lazarus to wait on him like a slave. It will not lead people to repentance. They will be confined in their rebellion against God for all time. Jesus tells us that hell is a place of great anguish and torment. Anguish and torment is felt in the soul. The old hellfire and brimstone preacher's emphasis was on physical suffering in their descriptions. The rich man desired his tongue to be cooled, which is physical, but his real problem was the torment and anguish of his soul. The language that Jesus uses is about soul suffering. That is what David feared. He didn't fear his enemy physically. His soul was being torn apart. We said his soul's torment was in God's furnace of affliction, refining him. It was not a physical furnace that David was in. Some of these things that affect our souls are things like lovelessness, worthlessness, purposelessness, desperation, acute anxiety, meaninglessness, and as Solomon says, vanity of vanity, futility of futility. Our experience is that any of those things singly will tear our soul apart. It destroys our life. To be suffering from them all at once will be more hell than anybody could bear. There are things that being in relationship with God delivers you from and makes life worth living. God's love to us in Christ is boundless. He places upon us the highest value that a human can attain to by making us fellow heirs with Christ and appointing us as kings and priests in service to him. Our purpose is to love him as he has loved us, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. And that is what gives true meaning to life. People take Matthew 10, 28, where Jesus says, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell as teaching total annihilation, suffering for a little while and then eventually seeking to exist altogether. And they say that is your eternal punishment. Surely if you stop being aware of your punishment, then you're no longer being punished. If you cease to exist, your punishment ends. That is why people live the lives of abandonment that they do because they don't believe that they will be punished eternally. Jesus said we go to eternal life or eternal punishment. If eternal punishment can end, you can cease being aware of it, then so can eternal life. Eternal is the same word used to describe both punishment and life. So what is this destruction that Jesus is talking about? I believe that like the rich man's attitude didn't change in hell, so all aspects of unrepentant sinners never change. An unrepentant sinner in, is in that state because he is dead already in trespasses and sins. Dead. You don't get more destroyed than that, do you? Yet you continue to exist. When I write my car off in an accident, it is said to be destroyed, but it still exists as a wreck. That's what an unrepentant sinner is, uh, a wreck. When an engine in a car seizes up, we say it died, but it still exists in an unserviceable state. A wreck is something that's no longer fit for purpose. It is of no use whatsoever. 
the original purpose for which it was created, can no longer be fulfilled by it. I can no longer go cruising down the road in a written-off wreck with a dead motor. The purpose of it has been destroyed, but it still exists. My car is now a useless lump of metal, plastic, rubber and glass. An unrepentant sinner is of no use to God. All mankind were created to glorify God. But an unrepentant sinner, that purpose has been destroyed. He cannot take place. He cannot glorify God as an unrepentant sinner. God's destruction of you is confirming that in you for eternity. Up until your death, you had the possibility that God could make something out of you, that he could redeem you, he could use you for his honour and glory. Once you stand before him in judgment, that possibility is removed forever and that is what you'll suffer and be tormented by eternally. Those feelings of worthlessness, meaninglessness, acute anxiety, loneliness, desperation, being unloved will be for all eternity. David was tormented just by lies being told about him. That was hell enough for him to think that he had his soul was being torn apart. Saints on earth do get a taste of hell. We do get a taste here on earth, but it is all the hell that we'll ever experience. Likewise, unrepentant sinners have a taste of heaven while they're on earth. Here on earth they enjoy the experience and experience the common grace of God. In hell those blessings are gone forever. It's all bad. No goodness, no blessing whatsoever. Forever. All the bad rubbish stuff in your life, forever and forever. All at once, no let up. Forever. You might stoically endure the bad in your life now, but you do so because of the common grace and mercy of God to all mankind, which we all experience. We experience the rain. He sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We experience the sunshine. We experience bountiful seasons. We experience many blessings in life. And they enable us here and now to grit our teeth and to soldier on. But in hell, there is none of them. Just desolation and torment. Really, today, I don't think we can spend too much time on hell, but I'll call it quits for today. Search the scriptures and see if it's so. Your eternal destiny depends upon it. There's lots of arguments that people bring up from obscure references, from Genesis right through to Revelation, but don't start with them to interpret what Jesus said. Rather, like Paul, start with what Jesus said to understand all the others. I truly believe that downgrading hell is of the devil because it downgrades what Jesus did in dying on the cross to rescue us from sin and hell. It downgrades God's great plan of salvation. It downgrades God's anger, his indignation against sin. It downgrades the honour and the glory of God, both Father and the Son. Those old-time preachers might have got it wrong in the way they went about it, but they never downgraded and they never took lightly the honour and the glory of God. Okay, let's move on to verses 13 through to 15. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. This is the way that uh, evil develops. It's conceived. Conception involves two small cells coming together. Evil usually comes about by two small thoughts coming together. Like the Pharisee, pride is usually involved. Thinking more highly of yourself than you should, and then next comes jealousy. In Saul's case, being king wasn't enough. He wanted to be high priest as well. Saul heard the women singing greater praise to David than they sung to him, and he became jealous. He stewed over these things in his mind, and they grew. He nurtured them like a woman nurtures a baby in the womb. So it continues to grow and thrive. Mischief developed in his mind. Mischief here means trouble is brewing. It becomes a rage against David and he wants to destroy David. 
it gives birth to lies. So Saul had to justify his rage and his desire to destroy David. So he comes up with a lie that David is a threat to him and seeks to harm him. Saul is a mischievous man. The biblical connotation is that he is a troublesome man. Trouble followed him everywhere. There's a saying credited to Luther, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop him from making a nest in your hair. You can't stop evil thoughts from coming into your mind, but you can stop them from making a home there. The more you think about evil, the more it will grow. Verses 15 and 16, he makes a pit, digging it out, and he falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns on his head, on his own skull, violence descends. This is like watching slapstick comedy, really. You imagine God sitting up in heaven laughing his head off, how frustrates the plans of evil men. This is what Psalm 37 verses 12 to 15 says. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and they bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken. Evil thoughts and actions won't deliver you and they won't ultimately advance your case. They'll become a trap to you, they'll ensnare you, they'll bring you into bondage to them. Spurgeon says, digging a hole to entrap somebody is the work of a coward. To catch somebody unaware as they go about life. They do it secretly because they are too scared to meet you face to face. They actually fear you as much as they despise you, but they won't face you. When a person lets evil dwell in their minds, fester and build, it generally leads to a bitter spirit. Bitterness towards somebody else has little or no effect upon that person. Often they might be totally unaware that you are actually bitter towards them. Though they're unaware of what's got you acting so perversely towards them, but it destroys your peace of mind, your joy, your composure, it wrecks your life. You have fallen into a pit of your own making. Verse 16, his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull his violence descends. Picture of a man picking up a great big rock and he wants to smash it down on another person's head but in the process he stumbles and it falls on his own head. See one, somebody shooting an arrow up into the air and he wants it to fall down upon his enemy but God brings a strong wing and blows it back upon himself. People have actually gone to burn down their neighbours' homes and set themselves on fire in the process of it. God often intervenes and frustrates the plans of the wicked. Sometimes he lets it run its course, but never forget, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The wicked will answer to God. Thinking that you will destroy someone on earth or their reputation will cause you to suffer everlasting destruction in hell. You don't believe in God, you don't believe in judgment, you don't believe in hell, you think that heaven is a pipe dream, what a clever person you are. God says, what a massive pit you have dug for yourself. What an incredible weight of disappointment and devastation will crash down on your head when you are called to stand before him and he judges you. Our final verse, verse 17. I will give thanks to the Lord, sorry, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord the Most High. David ends this psalm in a joyful thanksgiving praise. Compare that to the desperation and anxiety of his heart he commenced the psalm with, seeking refuge in God, pleading to be saved and rescued from his enemies, fearing that his enemies would destroy him. As David worked through his knowledge of how God the righteous judge saves, delivers, refines and rewards those who are upright in heart and how God judges and condemns and punishes the wicked who reject God and his way of salvation, he comes to a re renewed state of mind 
a new state of heart, a new renewed state of soul. The slander of a man was dragging him into the depths of despair, but the knowledge of God's righteousness to him, for him, in him, has him worshipping God in joyful song. The sound of this song and the harp, David's harp playing must have started out, as Slim Dusty would say, so morbid, so drear. But throughout each verse, the tone and tune would have subtle changes to it as his contemplation of himself and his miserable state becomes more gradually focused on God, his glory and his greatness. This last verse is a harmonious crescendo of melody joyfully winging its way to God. Are you cast down in care, misery, despair? It's time to stop looking at yourself and your miserable estate and contemplate God in all of his righteousness and glory. Be in the word, learn all you can about God, learn about the great themes, the great doctrines that run right throughout scripture. And when you do that, you will have a new song of thanksgiving and praise rise in your heart to the Lord most high. Isn't that what we desire above all else? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we just come before you and Lord, this is a solemn word to talk about your judgment of uh, unrepentant sinners and to be cast into hell. But Lord, when we, your people, are able to work through your word and apply your word to our hearts and lives, we can see, Lord, uh, the work that you are doing in us, in us and that you are fitting us for glory. That for us who have put our hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is no longer any condemnation. That we have passed from death to life. And we rejoice, Lord, to know that that is so. Lord, if there is somebody here today in this building who is an unrepentant sinner, we pray, Lord, you might take these words and apply them to their heart and life and draw them to yourself. And we pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.